0: The following sermon, by our guest speaker, is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Thank you. I I decided to sort of extend the theme of the conference uh, across today. And so what I want to do this morning are two messages, actually, that deal with the grace of God. Because the theme is growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what grace is. And so in this hour, I want to talk about that. We'll look at Titus 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 11 through 15, and with a particular focus on verses 12 through 13. And while you're turning there, let me just make a few preliminary remarks. You know that Scripture draws a, a distinction, obviously, between law and grace. These are two different principles that at certain points uh, just flatly contradict one another or, or at least conflict with one another. Law condemns us. Grace forgives us. The Old Covenant was all about the law, and it, it highlighted the law. It brought the law and, and put it in writing on tablets of stone uh, so that people would would actually be bound by covenant to obey the law, and yet they couldn't. And so the law condemned them. The Scripture says Jesus is full of grace and truth. And the great thing about the new covenant and the, and the advent of Christ is that He introduced the second half of this message, which is the gospel, and, the, and it, it highlights the truth of grace. Law teaches us how vile and how far from righteousness we are, Grace offers us forgiveness. That's the gospel message. And yet, the gospel does not give us permission to continue in our unrighteousness. And that's what a lot of people misunderstand. There are other people who confound law and gospel. They blend the two together. And that is no small error. It's easy, an easy error to make. And in fact, let's be candid. I think there is something in the human heart, the fallen nature of humanity that makes us all prone to that error where we, in our thinking, in our, in our activities and all that, we tend to blur the line between law and gospel. That is the error that lies at the heart of all legalism. And uh, again, I think it's a tendency of every fallen human mind to default towards legalism. It's easier, we think, to live by lists of rules and, and, and things like that than to live by grace And it is right that we should resist the tendency towards legalism. There is no more deadly blunder in all of theology. Some of the strongest words of condemnation anywhere in the New Testament are aimed at those who would supplant the promises of the gospel with the demands of the law. You find that in Galatians 1, where Paul actually pronounces a double curse against these false teachers who were trying to do that. So, so I want to be clear on this. I hate legalism. I hate it with a holy passion. And yet, it's also a serious blunder that's also condemned in the strongest possible language by the Apostle Paul to imagine that somehow the gospel disagrees with the moral standard that was set by the law, that justification by faith eliminates the need for obedience or or that the perfect freedom of God's grace gives us some kind of license for unholy living. None of those things are true. Good works and obedience to God's commands and encouragements and admonitions to be holy, these are necessary aspects of the Christian life. Not necessary in the way the legalist suggests to earn favor with God. Uh, And in fact, our, our works are worthless for that, totally impotent for that purpose, but... Obedience is nevertheless a natural and inevitable and essential expression of love for Christ and gratitude for grace. And so the result of God's grace at work in our lives needs to be obedience. It ought to be. That's what's expected. And in fact, this is the chief practical lesson we learn from the principle of grace. Grace compels and it compels us to love and to good works. Grace constrains us to renounce and to pursue to renounce sin and to pursue righteousness. Listen, the gospel is more excellent than the law, but the two don't disagree. Believing the gospel sets us free from the condemnation of the law, but it doesn't release us from the moral standard that was set by the law. Or to say it another way, the principle of sola fide, faith alone justification by faith alone, that principle is not hostile to good works. The gospel simply puts good works in their proper place as the fruits of faith rather than the cost of justification. If we properly understand the principle of sola fide, it would actually make us zealous for good works, earnest in our pursuit of holiness and eager to obey the Lord's commands, we don't need to be the least bit hesitant to provoke one another to love and good works. But there's a lot of confusion about that today. There are people who say, if you, if you, say, if you make any kind of statement that, that utters a command that demands obedience, that is inherently legalistic. It's not. And that's what we're going to see in this passage we're looking at in this hour, Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. And I'll start by reading the text. And as I, list, as I read, you listen with three questions in mind. What, what lessons do we learn from a biblical understanding of the principle of grace? What does this passage say? What is grace supposed to be teaching us? In all our talk about grace-saturated, gospel-focused, Christ-centered ministry, have we actually understood grace properly, or have we unwittingly fallen into step with ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And this passage might provoke you to rethink your answer to some of those questions. Here's the passage. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you now that's Paul's instructions to Titus who he was he was teaching as a as a young pastor and I want to start with a word about the context and the circumstances that prompted this epistle. Paul is writing to Titus, whom he has left on the island of Crete, so that Titus could set in order what remained and appoint elders in every city. That's chapter 1, verse 5. So Titus' job is to train and appoint structured leadership for the churches in that, on that island, and it's essentially identical the, the list that Paul gives him, the instructions Paul gives him here, are essentially identical to the, the list of qualifications for an elder that are given in 1 Timothy 3. And the central principle, of course, is that leaders in the church are God's stewards and therefore they are to be morally and reputationally above reproach. And Paul reiterates that same expression twice at the start of his list here in Titus 1, verse 6, and again in verse 7. And he follows with a list of specifics about, that spell out what it means to be above reproach. And if you read that list, you'll notice one thing, that except for the ability to teach, which is a gift that is absolutely necessary to fulfill the calling of an elder, the requirements Paul names are not skills and talents, they're character qualities. And all of them have to do with maturity and self-control and moral rectitude. This is the kind of man who's qualified to be a leader in the church. He's not a clown or a comedian. He's not a frat house bad boy or a, or a super cool trendsetter with a you know, celebrity potential written all over him. Not as one pastor we have in Southern California likes to bill himself. He calls himself not a pastor, but a futurist a filmmaker, and an innovator, and a motivational speaker. That's how he builds himself. That's not what Paul has in mind here, but the type of person Titus was to appoint over the church, not a guy with a huge ego and a gift for you know, being glib. There's nothing here about appealing to one generation or another. There's nothing about artistic ability or educational degrees or political correctness, business acumen, clothing style, cleverness and creativity, or knowledge of popular culture. In other words, none of the things churches today tend to weigh when they're heavily, weigh heavily when they're looking for a pastor. None of that stuff is in Paul's list. But the elders Titus was to train and ordain simply needed to be mature, godly, disciplined men, able to handle the Word of God accurately and to teach its truths to others. That's the one requirement. Everything else is optional he's not looking for young restless and culturally savvy hipsters he's looking for godly men who are fully mature and steadfast and if you grasp what paul is saying and compare it to twenty first century evangelical culture it might cause you a bit of cognitive dissonance because it becomes clear that the idea paul has in mind for the church is not very much like the mainstream of american evangelical the evangelical movement in america but the strategy Paul is telling Timothy to use in his church planting exercise, which is really what he's doing, the, the, the strategy he sets forth is just nothing at all like what today's church planters think is absolutely necessary. You know, I can't imagine that Titus read this epistle and took Paul to mean that he needed to start learning how to contextualize or sponsor sex seminars or stage symposiums on innovation and church marketing or offering courses on leadership that were borrowed from whoever the first-century equivalent of Peter Drucker might be. It's always mystified me how so many church leaders, contemporary church leaders, can read the stuff that's published by church growth gurus and ministry philosophy experts and not see the glaring discrepancies between what the Apostle Paul actually commanded and what's really being done in mainstream evangelicalism. And I I know that's a bit of a digression. But let me say this as plainly as possible. The greatest threats to the gospel today are not government policies that undermine our core values, not secular beliefs that attack our confessions of faith, not even atheists who deny God, but the greatest enemies of the gospel today are worldly churches and hireling shepherds who trivialize Christianity. And that's not a new problem. It was a problem even in Paul's time, in the very earliest churches, in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, For many walk, of whom I have told you, and now tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about people in the church. And one of the chief characteristics... Paul named about these people who he said are enemies of the cross, enemies of authentic grace, one of the chief characteristics was that they set their minds on earthly things. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality, he said. They twisted the idea of Christian liberty into an opportunity to gratify the flesh, and they used their freedom as a cover-up for evil. Those are Paul's exact words. And in the process they trivialized the cross, they corrupted the ideas of grace, the idea of grace, and they they perverted the gospel. None of the apostles were squeamish when it came to calling them out. And here in our text, Paul employs the principle of grace itself to refute that kind of trivialized, worldly, lawless notion of religion. He says the true lessons we learn from grace fly in the face of everything that is shallow or worldly or unrighteous or disobedient or even merely passive in that sort of deeper life, let go and let God kind of way. And in fact, Paul is admonishing Titus not to give in to the trends of secular culture in Crete. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, now, that probably wasn't a politically correct thing to say even then. But Paul adds emphatically Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. This testimony is true, he says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He's telling Titus that the church is supposed to be countercultural, resistant to the evils and the flaws of secular society, church leaders are not supposed to be obsessed with gaining accolades and admiration from the world. But instead, Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And and he goes on to give a series of commands for specific categories of people in the church. Older men, verse 2. Now, we're in chapter 2 now. So this is To teach what accords with sound doctrine, and he lists these categories. Older men, verse 2. Older women, likewise, verse 3. Young women, verse 4. Younger men, verse 6. Slaves, verse 9. So it's all the categories of society. And Titus, as the missionary church planting pastor, is given himself individually a particular directive. Paul says to him in verse 7, In all respects, you be a model of good works especially for the sake of the young men who represent future leaders in the church, because he puts that in the context of the instruction to younger men. Now notice, verse 1 speaks about what accords with sound doctrine, and then Paul goes on to itemize a short list of things that we would classify as practical duties, rather than the types of things we would maybe categorize as doctrinal truths. You see, one of Paul's main points here is that he does not want Titus to spend all his time teaching doctrine as theory and focusing only on objective biblical, historical, and theological content at the expense of exhorting the church to obedience and practical holiness. It's not theoretical with Paul. And I'll be honest with you, I think that is a particular danger In my style of teaching, I tend to take a didactic approach that's heavy on material truth and objective doctrine, and sometimes I have to remind myself, that's not enough. Scripture is profitable, all Scripture, profitable for practical exhortation. And we haven't really heard what the text is saying until we listen with an obedient ear. Not merely with the ear of a scholar, but with servant's ears. And Paul's point is that the vital practical duties of holiness and obedience are in perfect accord with sound doctrine. So calls to obedience and exhortations to virtue are not legalistic. They're not inconsistent with the doctrines of grace. Much less are they opposed to grace. And in the words of verse 10, Paul has outlined in this chapter actions and characters and qualities that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's an amazing statement. In other words, if you'll allow me to quote the NIV, these are things that will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Not, you know, attractive in the sense that they turn the message into a story that the world is going to like. The gospel is still a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ himself is still a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And his warning in John 15 still holds true. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. That's what Jesus says. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So in the words of John 3.13, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. You can't change that and be faithful. We need to stop trying so hard to win the world's affections. And yet, authentic virtue is attractive in the sense that it captures the attention of the world, and it gives our message an undeniable measure of credibility. And in that sense, To cultivate basic virtue is a thousand times more attractive than the currently popular brand of stylish evangelicalism, you know, where you just want to be hip. And that's the Apostle Paul's strategy for reaching a hostile culture. Live a godly life. And what intrigues me about this passage, and it always has, this passage has always fascinated me, because he uses the principle of grace to make his point. Nobody can say to Paul, well, you're preaching law. All that call for obedience and holiness, you're just preaching the law. He's not. He's talking about grace here. In contrast to those who turn grace into licentiousness, Paul says the biblical principle of grace teaches us something entirely different. And in fact, I see three distinct lessons here that Paul says we can learn from grace. And all of them have to do with how we live. In other words, these are practical, not theoretical lessons. And all three lessons give us some instructions or incentives for righteous living and obedience to the Lordship of Christ. And that, Paul says, is what grace ought to produce. Not, you know, a lax attitude about virtue and vice, not a casual acceptance of worldly values, but the exact opposite. Paul is saying the real fruit of divine grace is a holy life, and the three lessons that grace teaches for us are outlined in verses 12 and 13. But before we zero in on those two verses, I want you to notice the the structure here of the larger passage starting in verse 11. Notice the two occurrences of the word appear. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Verse 13, We're waiting for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same basic word in the Greek, just like in the English. And the word in verse 11 is the verb form, to appear. The word in verse 13 is the noun form, appearance, but it is the same root. And the Greek word has the connotation of brightness, literally to shine forth or to be brought to light. And those two words in this text point to the two advents of Christ. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, past tense. How specifically? Well, in the incarnation and ministry of Christ, that's what he's saying. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's John 1, 7. And I think it's important to note that what John meant when he said that is not... He wasn't suggesting, of course, that the old covenant, the legal covenant, was somehow devoid of grace. It wasn't. He wasn't saying that grace is a whole new idea that somehow you know, is brought on by Christ at his first advent, he simply means that Christ himself is the very embodiment of divine grace. You know, Moses, on the one hand, was the lawgiver. Jesus, on the other hand, is the source and the living representative of God's grace. So, in the Old Covenant, law was the dominant feature. John one fourteen, the word became, oh, rather, The law was the dominant feature. You know that from the Mosaic Covenant. Grace and truth are the dominant features in the New Covenant. Now, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. So, Moses was the instrument and and the representative through which the law was handed down on stone tablets. Christ is the person in whom... Grace and truth are incarnated in a living being. But Moses and Christ are not adversaries. You understand this, right? Quite the contrary. Christ came as the fulfillment of everything Moses ever wrote about, and that includes the law. Grace fulfills the law. It doesn't overthrow it. Jesus himself said that at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount. It was really one of the first messages he brought Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. And so grace in the person of Christ appeared in a unique and definitive way through the incarnation and atoning work of Christ. And Paul refers to this again over in chapter 3. Look at chapter Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Now, the word appearing in Titus 2.13 is, of course, a reference to the second advent of Christ. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we look forward to. We don't have time to go into detail on this, but the way Paul words that statement is very instructive. Here is an example where I think the King James Version is less helpful, and, and virtually all the modern translations get it exactly right. This is a reference to one person, not two. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a, this is a definitive affirmation of the deity of Christ, and it's an exact parallel to the expression found at the end of verse 10, God our Savior. Jesus Christ is both our God and our Savior, And it is His appearing in glory that we await. And meanwhile, we live between these two advents, the two appearings. And at the end of verse 12, Paul refers to this time span between the two appearings as the present age. And so, he points us to the past, when the grace of God appeared, past tense. He wants us to live in the present age, exemplifying the virtues of grace in the hectic here and now. And he also wants us to keep an eye expectantly towards the future as we wait for our blessed hope, the return of God our Savior, in his full resplendence, which will be the final culmination of both grace and glory. And in other words, there are past, present, and future dimensions to grace. While we live between these two advents, grace is taking us to school. And the whole present age is the school of grace. And I see three main lessons that grace is trying to teach us. They're all hard lessons because they all run contrary to the natural tendencies of our fallen flesh, but we have to keep relearning these lessons every day and grace keeps teaching us. But here they are. Lesson number one, grace trains us to repudiate the works of the flesh. That's number one. Grace teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh. Verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I need to comment on verse 11, but we can't linger there. Obviously, this text is not saying that grace brings salvation to each and every person who ever lives. Because Jesus repeatedly and expressly taught that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who are going to enter thereby, Matthew 7.13. Jesus' descriptions of the final judgment always included urgent warnings that there will be many in that day who will be told, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Titus 2.11 is not teaching any doctrine of universal salvation. The King James Version translates the text so that it says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. But here, too, I think the majority of modern translations have it right. It's salvation to all men. ESV says salvation for all people, and that has to be read in its own context. Notice the conjunction for at the beginning of the verse. It ties the statement to the one that preceded it, and it's that long list of people categories. Older men, older women, young women, younger men, and slaves. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of people. All people, old men, young women, young girls, young men, and slaves alike, training us all to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what he's saying. It's not universalism. And that's the first lesson we learn under grace As our instructor, to say no to worldly passions and ungodliness. In fact, this is exactly how the NIV translates it to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's a pretty fair rendering of the sense of the text. The Greek verb is a word that means to deny or to disavow or to refuse. Doesn't mean you don't feel those passions. It doesn't mean things don't tempt you, but it means you repudiate those things. It's a strong word, like, just like the English word repudiate. It's not as strong, perhaps, as the word Paul occasionally uses elsewhere, mortify, which means to put to death, Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5.24, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. But the sense is exactly the same. Repudiate ungodliness and worldly passions. How forcefully should we repudiate those things? You know what? Just go ahead and put them to death. Eliminate them. That's what Paul is saying. And that's the first lesson grace teaches us. It's what repentance is all about. It's the total unconditional renunciation and disavowal of fleshly works and worldly desires. Repudiate those things. Now, this is not optional. The notion that repentance is optional is the very same lie that was at the center of the lordship controversy, you know, no lordship doctrine, the notion that you can have Jesus as your savior, but you don't need to really take him as lord until you decide later maybe you want to. That's what the lordship controversy was about, and no lordship doctrine is found mainly in old-school dispensationalist circles, but it is a close cousin to the same kind of thinking that is currently popular in certain segments of the contemporary Reformed community. the idea is that, you know, every demand for obedience and every appeal for holiness is by definition regarded as legalistic, pietistic, moralistic, and therefore you're supposed to avoid such things as if they were a serious threat to the gospel and the principle of grace. Just talk about grace all the time and forgiveness and quit calling people to obedience. There are people who are saying that even today. And that is a foolish way to think. We all understand, I hope, that sanctification is not effortless and automatic. And yet, we also realize it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And if you think every appeal for holiness sounds like legalism, you've got a problem. On the other hand, if you think the actual remedy for defeat in the Christian life is just to double down and work harder at achieving holiness, you've got a problem there, too. Above all, you have a skewed view of grace if you think grace eliminates the need for holiness, because it doesn't. You have a skewed view of grace if you think grace simply overthrows righteousness in favor of a free and easy forgiveness. Scripture never talks that way. And whether you think that so that, that brand of so called free grace sounds dangerous or you think it sounds fun, if you think it renders all duty, all moral duty, moot, then you don't really understand grace at all. Because that's not what grace teaches us. Contemporary evangelicals are dangerously susceptible to both legalism and licentiousness, because evangelicals have been for generations toying with a superficial understanding of grace. The problem goes back, I think, more than a century. Grace was first degraded into a kind of escape hatch from hell, and then it was portrayed as a means of personal fulfillment. Nowadays, it's generally perceived as a principle that nullifies the need to be holy or to do right. And that's what some people think grace is, a principle that nullifies the need to do or be right. And I'm tempted to say that may be the dominant idea in the contemporary evangelical attitude towards sanctification, that if grace is in place, we're not under law, so why are you worried about holiness? That's a flat-out lie. And it is emphatically refuted by the Apostle Paul right here. The grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Now, notice, this first lesson alone makes a stark contrast to the conventional notion of grace. Grace is not a, a syrupy sentiment that makes us always passive and positive. Uh, you know, grace itself is dynamic, it's the active expression of God's favor. And it's undeserved favor. More than that, it's the exact opposite of what we do deserve. But it's a potent and powerful force. By grace, God lays hold of undeserving sinners and unites them spiritually with Christ, awakens their dead souls, removes their stony hearts, and gives them a tender heart of living flesh, and He blesses them with every spiritual blessing. All that is by grace. And the very first response grace elicits from the regenerate heart is a negative confession. We renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. In other words, the first motion of repentance is a gift from God. It's a work of grace. Every aspect of authentic repentance, if it's real repentance, it's motivated and energized by grace. The person who hasn't repented hasn't received grace at all. You know, we speak of irresistible grace. I like that expression because it conveys the sense that grace is dynamic, not passive. But it's also subject to misunderstanding. When we say grace is irresistible, we don't mean that God employs some kind of coercion or duress, you know, dragging us or arm-twisting us to Christ. Grace is irresistible in the same sense that I find my wife irresistible. It's not that she threatens me or forces me to bend to her will, usually. But I'm captivated in a very positive way by her inherent appeal. She's irresistible. And in a similar but even more profound way, divine grace draws us to Christ by attraction, not by constraint. And if you've been drawn to Christ by grace, if you truly love Him, if you see His grace and glory... You'll hate everything that opposes him. That's how the same grace that draws us to Christ teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And this, I think, is the very same truth Paul has in mind in Romans two four when he says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You know, you've heard of Martin Luther and how he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Listen to the very first of those 95 Theses. He wrote this, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions on a daily basis, and it's grace, properly understood, that instructs us to repent, not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but it prompts and energizes daily repentance from us after that, from then on. And that is lesson number one that you learn from grace, to repudiate the works of the flesh. Here's a second lesson, number two. Grace teaches us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Second half of verse 12. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the threefold stress there on sobriety, righteousness and godliness. The first term is from a Greek word that literally refers to soundness of mind. Be sober. Its, its connotation is self-control and moderation. The King James Version says soberly. The New American Standard Bible says sensibly. Both of those ideas are inherent in the word. The ESV says self-controlled, and that's a decent English synonym as well. The idea is not merely temperance and moderation, but wisdom and prudence and circumspection and clarity of mind. It's describing a virtue whose chief benefit accrues to the individual himself. Grace trains us to be clear-headed and exercise cautious self-control. That's the message of grace. And the the second term, to live self-controlled, upright, upright, that second term describes a virtue that defines our relationship with other people. Grace trains us to live righteously, to live uprightly. The ESV and the NIV both use the word upright. Uh, To quote the great Baptist theologian John Gill, this word speaks of living righteously among men, giving to every man his due, and dealing with all according to the rules of equity and justice, as being made new men, created unto righteousness and true holiness, and as being dead to sin through the death of Christ, so living unto righteousness, or in a righteous manner." as being justified by the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. I don't think you could work, work the idea of righteousness, justification, uprightness into a sentence more times than John Gill just did there in one sentence. But what he's saying is it covers every dimension of righteousness, both practical and forensic. But because the context here clearly is about how we live our lives, I think the stress here is on how we deal with other fellow human beings. Upright living. That's the fruit of grace's training. And then the third term, godly, that by definition has a God word focus. So grace teaches us our duty with respect to God, our duty with respect to our neighbor, and our duty with respect to ourselves. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. But this third word... Godly has, is an adjective that means pious. The Greek word is etymologically the exact opposite of the word translated ungodliness earlier in the verse. Ungodliness is asbia. Godly is eusebas. They're negative and positive forms of the same root. Grace teaches us to shun impiety and to live piously. It's very simple and straightforward. Paul is not giving Titus here some complex and mysterious idea it's really quite simple grace authentic biblical grace not the shabby modern evangelical substitute but the grace of our lord jesus christ teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh and to cultivate the word the works of the spirit the fruit of the spirit And Paul teaches this very same idea in Galatians 5. This is the same thing he's saying in Galatians 5 when he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, of course, believers are not under the law, but under grace. So what Paul is doing in Galatians 5 is making a clear contrast between what the flesh produces under the yoke of the law... Versus what the Holy Spirit produces in us through the liberty of grace. And listen to the contrast, Galatians 5. And notice the only commodity our fallen flesh can possibly produce is corrupt works. But the Spirit's work in us is it's not works, it's fruit. And it's entirely virtuous, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the very things Titus 2.12 is saying we need to repudiate, ungodliness, and worldly passions. Now here are the things we cultivate. Verse 22, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice this. He says at the end, against such things there is no law. Again, grace and law are distinct, but they're not in disagreement when it comes to the moral standard. And Paul goes on in Galatians 5.24 to say this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an even more emphatic statement, isn't it? He puts it in the past tense. It says, if you really belong to Christ Jesus, you've already started this process at least. In other words, what defines us as Christians is this very thing that we do repudiate the works of the flesh. And grace, not the law, but grace is what teaches us and trains us and motivates us and empowers us to do this. And at the same time, grace teaches us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. So, lessons one and two that we learn in the school of grace, to repudiate the works of the law, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, and now third to anticipate the blessedness of eternity. That's number three, to anticipate the blessedness of eternity. Here's the key distinction between law and grace. For any thoughtful, self-aware, honest worshiper, the effect of the law alone, apart from grace, is sheer terror. Because we are sinners. And the law threatens sinners with absolute destruction. But grace fills us with anticipation and expectation for blessings that are going to last eternally. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's a different way to say it. The eschatology of grace is different from the eschatology of law. Where the law pronounces condemnation and swears eternal vengeance... Grace pronounces a blessing and promises eternal reward. Grace then teaches us to live in light of that hope. All the lessons grace teaches us are incentives for holiness. Did you notice that? Our hatred of unrighteousness, the debt we owe to Christ's righteousness, the reward we are promised in eternity, all of those things are incentives for us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And that was the aim Christ had when He redeemed us in the first place. Verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, Don't tell me there's anything inherently legalistic about being zealous for good works. And don't tell me grace rules out any kind of emphasis or stress on good works. Zeal for good works is the ultimate objective of grace. Now, bear in mind, this passage covers all tenses and all perspectives. Past, present, future. Self, others, God. In every respect except one, the lessons of grace are in perfect agreement with what the law teaches us. They say the same thing. Both law and grace tell us that we should renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Both law and grace say that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly lives in the present age. Both law and grace humble us and show us the virtue of self-control. Both law and grace say we should live righteously and love our neighbor as ourselves. Both law and grace instruct us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind and all our strength. And so in every respect, grace is in agreement with the commands and the directives of the eternal moral law of God. Don't ever entertain the thought that law and grace or law and gospel just flatly contradict one another. But there is this one vital distinction between law and grace, and the difference lies in this third lesson. The law threatens us with destruction because we cannot obey perfectly. That's what grace gives us, both the power and the desire to obey. So the law threatens us, grace enables us, that's the difference. Philippians 2.13 says this, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's a description of the working of grace. The will and the energy for obedience are gracious gifts from God. So while law and grace agree in that they both urge us to be holy, the law can only condemn us for our failure and threaten us with destruction. And grace, on the other hand, is the remedy for our failure, and it guarantees us eternal blessing. So the one key difference, succinctly put, is that the law cannot give life, it can only bring death. Second Corinthians 3:6, "The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We're saved through sanctification by the spirit, according to 2 Thessalonians 2:13. 2, "The gracious work of the spirit in our hearts guarantees our sanctification as well. Listen to Romans 8:3 8, verse, eight verses three and four. God has done, by, uh, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh and what then he overturned the moral uh, imperatives of the law and eliminated them no in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so, the distinct the distinction between law and grace has nothing to do with the commandments or the moral content of the law. What grace eliminates and overturns are the curses of the law. And as far as the moral imperatives of the law are concerned, grace is in full agreement. Paul expressly says so in Galatians 3, verse 6. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's Galatians 3.21. So the problem with the law was our inability and our lack of desire to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Grace is the remedy for that. And the result, verse 14, that we should be redeemed from all lawlessness and purified for Christ, a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And there's nothing the least bit legalistic about that zeal. The command Paul gives here in Titus 2.15 has implications not only for pastors and teachers like Titus, but also for every one of us as we encourage and admonish one another. This is a command for all of us. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a powerful truth about grace that is so often misunderstood in our generation. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to and learn from the lessons of grace, that we would live soberly and righteously and godly in this age, that we would keep our eye fixed on the hope of the return of the lord jesus christ and in the meantime glorify him with our lives for his glory and in his name we pray amen you've been listening to a presentation of mission road bible church in prairie village kansas for more information visit missionroadbiblechurch.com